Britain backs Israel. As the government of Benjamin Netanyahu pummels Gaza, both Labour and the Tories agree. They are fully behind him. And that's nothing new. From the Balfour Declaration in 1917, which first promised Jews a state in Palestine, all the way up to last weekend when Suwala Braverman branded half a million people demonstrating for peace a hate march, Britain has consistently had Israel's back. To find out why, I spoke to David Waring, a lecturer in international relations at Sussex University and an expert on UK relations to the Middle East. This is my fourth episode of Crash Course on the Gaza War. You can support the podcast for as little as £3 a month over on Patreon, and there is an extended version of this episode available for Patreon subscribers. To sign up, you can visit patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. David Waring, thank you for joining me on Crash Course. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So we're talking today about why Britain supports Israel. I think to most of our listeners, it will be obvious that they do. Um, on my other show, Navarra Live, we're, we're constantly showing clips and quotes from British politicians who are essentially giving Israel unconditional support, um, whatever it is that they do, you know, however extreme they sound, however catastrophic and horrific their actions are towards the Palestinians. And today I really want us to get to the bottom of, of why that is. Has it always been the case? And what drives it? Is it is it based on economic interest? Is it based on an Israel lobby? Is it based on Israel being some outpost of, of Western empire? Um, and so that's what I want to get from you. And I suppose maybe we could start with the the historical angle as to whether Britain has always backed Israel. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good place to start. And it helps us to understand and develop an understanding of Britain's geostrategic interest in supporting Israel um, and the kind of ideological and political aspects of this as well, which which kind of reinforce the strategic logics. Um, if you go right back to the beginning, you have the Zionist movement amongst European uh, Jews um, developing in the late 19th, early 20th century, which is basically a, a, a Jewish nationalism, um, developing in the context of European anti-Semitism, and also in the context of, you know, the development of, of of nationalism as a as a as a concept as an ideology, which was quite new in the nineteenth century. Anyhow, um, so this this you know Zionist movement develops, this Jewish nationalist movement develops, and wins the support of the British um, in the early twentieth century. Now the context here is really important. They want to create this new Jewish homeland in um, in Palestine, um, which is held by the Ottoman Empire at the time. And if you think geographically where, where Palestine is, and you think about what the British Empire looks at the time, this is really important strategic real estate, right? So the, the Britain's most significant, biggest colonial possession is India. It's a huge empire in, in, in the Indian subcontinent. I think about where Palestine sits between Britain and India and adjacent to the key maritime route between Britain and India, i.e. through the Mediterranean, through the Suez Canal, down through the Red Sea and in, into the Indian Ocean. Palestine is right there adjacent to that. Um, there are also land routes to India, which, are, which again go through from, from, the, from the eastern coast of the Mediterranean across the Middle East. And as the 20th century develops, there's now an aerial route as well. And of course, these days we're used to flying non-stop to all sorts of parts of the world. But in those days, you'd have to do frequent refueling stops. 
And so there's a link across the Middle East of, of airports where British planes can refuel on their way to India. And there's the telegraph routes as well, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, long story short, Palestine is a really important piece of real estate that the British want to control. And also, as the 20th century develops, you've got oil. And oil becomes, as you know, anyone who's heard my interviews on Navarra or anywhere else will be sick of hearing me say the words, oil is the strategic lifeblood of the world economy, of the industrialised world economy that's developing uh, through the 20th century. Oil becomes indispensable to industrial activity. Um, and it's not just about fuel, it's about all the oil derivatives, petrochemicals, plastics, fertilisers, synthetic fibres. Oil is so important. And... You've got huge strategic reserves of oil in the Middle East, not in Palestine itself, but in a, you know virtually adjacent countries: Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Kuwait, United Arab Emirates, and Israel. Is it? Or Palestine is in that neighbourhood. So there's so many reasons why this is a really important piece of real estate for the British. Now, in 1914-1918 war, First World War. Britain is fighting the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire dominates the Middle East, has done for 400 years or so, and it's allied with the central powers, Britain's opponents in World War I, that's the Germans and, and Austria-Hungary. Um, so Britain is fighting in the Middle East. And in 1917, as it's virtually at the gates, figuratively speaking, of Palestine, the British issued the famous Balfour Declaration, named after the Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour, who writes this very short letter uh, to the Zionist leadership on behalf of the British cabinet, the British government, in which he says, we are prepared to look favourably on and support the creation of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Um, notwithstanding the need to respect the civil and religious rights of the people who are already in Palestine, the Palestinians. So does he put that in the, that's in the letter, is it? That's in the Balfour Declaration? Very short letter, like 60, 70 word letter. But this is what he says. And, and note those words, civil and religious rights, not national rights, not political rights. So, the, you know, the, the Jewish people have national rights in Palestine. The Palestinians don't have national rights in Palestine. That's the, you know, so that, that's the British pledge. The British take Palestine in their military campaign in World War One. World War One then ends with, 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 with the victory of the Allies, the defeat of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire then shrinks to the rump state of what we now know as Turkey. And the, the League of Nations is created, which is like a precursor to the modern-day United Nations. And under the League of Nations, under the auspices of the League of Nations, Britain and various countries are awarded mandates over certain territories, territories of the defeated powers. And the British and the French are given mandates, UN mandates, sorry, League of Nations mandates, to control certain territories in the Middle East. The French are given Lebanon and Syria, and the British are given what we now know as Israel-Palestine, um, Jordan, and Iraq. Uh, and the mandate basically says, you civilised powers are entrusted to look after the lesser peoples of the world and bring them up to a civilised state. So, you know, there's, you know, racism is that the, the colonial-style racism and colonial power relations are at the heart of these mandates. You know, it's not a particularly 
uh, you know, liberal egalitarian project, albeit it's framed as such. And written into Britain's League of Nations mandate for Palestine are basically the terms of the Balfour Declaration. So now it's not just a letter from Arthur Balfour to Lord Rothschild on behalf of the British government. It's now um, formalised and legalised through this League of Nations mandate. What's the British strategic thinking here? The British strategic thinking here is this is really important real, real estate for all, just geopolitically, for all the regions I've mentioned. How can we control it? It's not just about controlling it directly. I and mean, British colonial power is never just about British forcible dominance of these areas. It's also really important to have local allies, right, to cultivate people on the ground who will be your interlocutors and who will support you and you will support them and they'll do a lot of the governing on your behalf. They might even be independent, quote-unquote, but you'll be in the background and they'll be your allies. And the way the British and the French would develop their power in the Middle East would be by cultivating minorities against majorities. This is how everyone's heard the phrase divide and rule. This is how it concretely works in practice. You find a minority... You cultivate them, you elevate them into positions of power. That in turn alienates them from the majority and the majority from them and creates tensions between them, makes them, that minority, more reliant on you and they become the people who govern on your behalf. You look around the Middle East. Britain cultivates Sunni Arabs in Iraq against the majority Shia population. France cultivates... Alawites, again, in Syria, against the majority Sunni population. France cultivates Christian population in, in, in Lebanon. And Britain cultivates the, the Zionist um, movement in, in Israel, in, in Palestine. And we can see, you look right across the region in the present day, what have we seen over the last 10, 20 years? These huge civil wars, civil conflicts, communal conflicts between these groups. Because what happens is... In that colonial period, which is the period of state formation, these states are birthed in that period, 1918 onwards to 45, before they get they get their independence in the sort of in 1940s, 50s or so. In that whole process of state formation, these countries have created these divided states, and then those divisions perpetuate themselves, result in communal conflicts, state uh, civil conflicts. So it's worth placing Israel-Palestine within that broader, within that broader kind of, um, within that broader picture. Um, so just focusing in on Palestine, Britain's project now is to develop this, 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 this Jewish homeland in, in, in the service of Britain's strategic interests in Palestine and its wider strategic interests in, in West Asia. And so Britain facilitates Jewish immigration into Palestine in in in, in the pursuit of that. Um, sorry, you wanted to ask me. Well, I was going to say. Well, it, it, I suppose one thing I just wanted to just to get down on this idea of empowering the minorities, because I suppose if you try and make sort of strong connections with the majority, um, they're going to be inclined to say we don't need this imperial power anymore. So they're going to sort of fight for independence. So that's why you want the minority, because the minority is completely dependent on you, because they don't have the option of declaring independence, because then they'd get destroyed in there. In their, in their country, right? So that's the that's the logic. Yeah, I mean, look, fundamentally, you do kind of know, I guess, that people don't like being dominated by outside powers. And the real danger is that the majority acts on that fundamental human inclination not to be dominated by outside powers and to have some form of self-determination and to have some 
a government which has a sense of legitimacy is really hard to maintain an empire because you basically need to use either force or political manipulation to to ensure that your opponents, your subjects, never amass the force that they need to expel you. Um, and so, yeah, you, you, you know, it, it, the, the, the danger is that your subjects coalesce and unite against you. Mm. And there's always a potential for that to happen. To, to go back to the, the story of, of Britain and, and, and the Jews in, in historic Palestine. So as far as I understand it, they, they start out pretty keen on having a Jewish state here and having um, the Jews be the minority that are very close to them, that are reliant on them, who can sort of manage Palestine, this piece of real estate, as you're, you're, you're describing it quite um, insightfully, I think. But then they, they somewhat change and then there's more tension between the Brits and the, and the Jews. And you have a 1939 white paper um, which restricts Jewish immigration. So the whole point, obviously, this is, you know, there weren't shed loads of Jews in historic Palestine. So the Balfour Declaration always implied that lots of Jews would move there. You know, there were some there already, but you know, there were lots more to move there. But then in 1939, which is a very, you know, unfortunate time for the British to have made this decision, if you were going to choose a moment in history to stop Jews moving anywhere, you know, the, the late 1930s wasn't a great time to do it. Um, but why did the, the Brits decide in 1939, actually, we need to slow this down. Um, we're we're going to try and stop more Jews coming to Palestine. Yeah. I mean, it's worth thinking about when I talk about cultivating minority. Um, I've, I've used analogies of Iraq and Syria to, to frame it as a kind of minority within a country, but also think about, you know, Zionist Jews will be a, a minority in the region more generally, and they'll be reliant on the British by virtue of that, too, even if they're a majority in historic Palestine. Of course, the danger is that in, in exacerbating these divisions to help you control things, the danger is that the, the, the divisions break out into violence and that undermines your control, you know. I mean, fundamentally, empires rely on force and force and violence of, of you know, forces of nature to some degree. You can't, you, you, violence isn't something that you can necessarily control and division isn't something you can necessarily control. And what happens is... I think about it from the point of view of the Palestinians in the, in the early part of the 20th century. They're living in an era of colonialism. They're living in an area where colonial states have been created through ethnic cleansing, through settler colonialism. You know, the new United, the United States is still reasonably new at this point, and it's conquered the whole of the, you know, the, the, the northern half of, the, 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 of that continent, as it were, or that, that territory that we know as the United States today has just been brought into being through ethnic cleansing and settler colonialism. Australia, New Zealand. So the Palestinians are seeing this in that context and they can see that the project is, and you know, the early Zionists were quite clear about this. People can read like Rashid Khalidi, for example, and, and see and documenting this. They were quite clear that they were a settler colonial project with the aim of creating a, a, a Jewish state at the expense of the Palestinians. The Palestinians were aware of this. Now, as things progress, Palestinian resistance grows, and then in 1936, there's a huge Palestinian uprising against British rule, and that runs from 1936 to, to 39. Now, the, the British put this down with incredible force, like, you know, collective punishment, indiscriminate violence against the general population, humiliation, torture, you know, all, all this kind of thing. And the British defeat the uprising, um, but remember, we're in the run-up to World War II now, and the British are thinking on the one hand, 
we can't just give the Palestinians their independence. We need to control this part of the world. You know, the oil reserves and all that is going to be usually it's going to be important with World War II. On the other hand, we really can't afford to alienate the Arab world. What if we lose the Arab world at a time when we're fighting the you know the, the, the Germans? You know, we cultivated an Arab revolt against the Ottomans. What if the Germans did cultivate an Arab revolt against us? Right. So it's really important. You, yeah, you defeat the uprising. But then you've got to think about the political roots of the uprising, what you can do about that. And so notwithstanding the fact that the Third Reich is now in place and the Holocaust is starting to unfold, the beginnings of the Holocaust are starting to unfold in Germany, notwithstanding that, the British, from their point of view, take the view that we need to restrict Jewish immigration into Palestine now because it's becoming politically unsustainable for us on the ground. And so they issued this white paper in 1939 that basically says, look, we never said anything about a Jewish state, we said a Jewish home, and that's got to be balanced with the rights of Palestinians and Arabs. <laughs> it's his own you, you know, of course. This is, I mean, perhaps they didn't say anything about a Jewish state particularly, but the contempt for the Arabs that was there 20, 30 years earlier is now kind of dissipating, you know, out of this kind of concern that I've talked about. And so they tried to restrict Jewish immigration into Palestine, and that in turn elicits strong resistance from the Zionist Jewish community. And then you have non-state violence by these Zionist groups against British rule. The whole thing starts to break down over the course of the 1940s and eventually, you know, about getting too bogged down into the history and people have probably heard a lot about the Nagpur Reddit and I'll leave that to others to talk about that. But fundamentally, the British set the scene for that by basically washing their hands of the whole thing. When you get to the after the post-war period, Britain is so depleted in terms of its material power, it can't hang on to its empire. It loses um, India, India, which is a huge proportion of what the British Empire entails. And for the same reasons, it's not going to hold on in Palestine. Um, and at this point, it washes its hands of it. And I think that, you know, an, an analogy for that is partition in India, actually which was an enormous disaster. And this is the British just scuttling, basically saying, okay, you know, if we can't keep it, we don't care anymore. We'll draw this line in the map. You guys can fight over it. And it's a horrible, horrible disaster. And in the same sense, the, Britain and the British and Palestine basically say to the UN, you decide what's going to happen with this. The UN issues their partition resolution. The British say, fine, okay, but we're not policing that. See you later, 14th of May. 1948, they leave, and then that growing suits from there. And I suppose that's also when Britain passes. So Britain formally, so they have this mandate which they've got from the League of Nations, so they have the, the mandate to sort of control and, and, and determine what happens in historic Palestine. After the war, they're depleted. Their new strategy is that we need to focus on the domestic economy. Um, we're getting out of there. This is too complex. They give up their mandate to the UN, so then the UN gets a mandate for historic Palestine. They agree to the the sort of partition and the the nineteen forty seven borders, which probably lots of people will have seen seen online, sort of somewhat fifty fifty. I think the Jews get fifty five and the Palestinians get forty five, something like that. Split. So they've passed on responsibility to to the UN, but in practicality, in reality, they've really passed on responsibility to the United States, right? And and it's from that period onwards where it's a relationship between Israel and the United States, not Zionist Jews and Britain, which is sort of the key determinant of what happens in the Middle East. Yeah, kind of. I mean, the American relationship with Israel really starts to develop in the 60s, but 
what the British have really left the situation to is whatever unfolds on the ground, and notwithstanding the kind of mythology that Israel is this poor, beleaguered state against the massed ranks of these enormous Arab states, the fact is that the Arab states were pretty weak militarily, and these, you know these, the Zionist forces were pretty strong, and they were able to carve out their state. Um, you know, you affect the ethnic cleansing of the 750-odd thousand Palestinians that resulted in the creation of the State of Israel. Um, and yet, sure, they had support from the Americans as, as well, diplomatically. Um, but yeah, so it, it, it is, I think, just to sum up this chapter in the history, and then the, the post-war chapter is really crucial to understanding the, the, the modern relationship, and we'll get onto that in a second, but just to sum up this moment in the history, it's it's strategic from the point of view of the British. You know, they didn't. It, it's not a question of a powerful Israel lobby pushing the British around and forced them to do things that they don't want to do. It's the British Empire acting in its own interests, acting in its own interests, which are and, and in a way that is contemptuous both of Jewish life and Arab Palestinian life as well. You know, as we saw with Britain's actions in you know during the Holocaust and this restriction of Jewish immigration. Um, and then these manipulations are all in service of that, you know. And I think you know we will get into the rest of the history in a, in a minute. But just to pause and note the fact that it's British strategic interests and cold calculation in in pursuit of that that's underlying all of this. And then uh, let's move on to post-war relations. Then, so yeah, Britain is less involved now. You know, it, it doesn't have sort of this special status that it that it had before the war. But is it consistently still an ally of Israel or does it ever try and be a bit more sort of measured in terms of which side it allies with in the conflict? Well, the British, and this has been true ever since, I think, have been have, have tried to balance more their relationship with Israel on the one hand and their Arab allies on the other. Um, so the British tend to be slightly more dovish on Israel-Palestine than, than the Americans do partly because Britain isn't as strong a state as the United States. Um, but, yeah, I mean, look, the key thing to think about here in this in this period, so we're now into the period of decolonisation, right? The European empires are really weakened by that whole 30-year period between, you know, World War One, a depression, World War Two, And so the global south is effectively increasingly up for grabs, European empires retreating, um, newly sort of in resurgent forces of anti-colonialism across the world, and the United States and, and and the Soviet Union kind of competing directly or by proxy over who's going to dominate the South going forward. And in in the Middle East, you've got Arab nationalism now as a really major force, anti-colonial Arab nationalism, anti-colonial nationalism generally. And Britain has a really terrible time of it in this period, you know, the British, British Empire. Um, I mean, generally, in, in the period 1945 to 65, I think the British lose, like, they have 700 million people worldwide under British colonial rule in 1945, and it's 5 million 20 years later, and 3 million of them are in Hong Kong. So it's, a, it's an absolute revolution in British foreign relations. Affected against the, against the British, against their will, you know, it's a defeat. And in the Middle East, the British have been driven by Arab nationalists out of positions of either direct control or control by proxy in various parts of the of the region, driven out of Egypt, driven out of Iraq, 
driven out of what is now Yemen, you know, against their will. And, you know, in, in their attempt to hold on to these parts of, 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 of the Middle East, they do work with Israel sometimes. So in their war in 1956, the Suez Crisis, where the, the British tried to put down Arab nationalism in, in Egypt, the attempt to nationalise the Suez Canal by the um, Egyptian nationalist government, the British worked with the French and the Israelis to try and stop that. But where Israel really proves its worth to the West is in 1967, where it just smashes the forces of Arab nationalism in less than a week, Syria and Egypt especially. Um, this absolute decisive war during 1967 war, where they seize what's left of Mandate Palestine, um, it's Jerusalem, West Bank and Gaza Strip, but they also just deal this the heavy, heavy blow to Egyptian and mil Syrian in particular military power and Jordan as well. So, is it, is it fair to say, to some degree, that you know Arab nationalism, if it had sort of succeeded, you know, so if Nasser's vision of sort of pan-Arabism had had succeeded, and you had this very strong Arab state, that would have been against the strategic interests of of both the UK and the US, and so sort of having Absolutely. Israel in the middle there is this sort of spoiler country in a way. You know, you, it's yeah, very yeah. difficult to have pan-Arabism if you've got Israel there. So this spoiler country, which is heavily armed, very effective fighting machine, sort of just basically stops pan-Arabism happening, and that was the the real use of Israel in that period. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, anti-colonial nationalism continues as a political force and, you know, it's still really, you know, resonant and strong in the rest of the 60s and 70s and even today to some degree. But fundamentally, it's a major defeat, the 67 war. And what it says to the British and particularly the Americans and American support for Israel really starts to accelerate around this time is that these people who've been causing you all the problems, well, we'll we've got problems with them as well and we, we, we can deal with them for you or we can play a role here you know and so in a region which continues to be really strategically important in a region where anti-colonial anti-western nationalism uh you know the drive for independence and autonomy and self-determination true self-determination against neo-colonialism as well as colonialism at a time when all that is quite strong when there are quite a few states in the region which are connected to that that region-wide movement and when western allies and when the west are worried about that movement western allies are worried about that movement the saudis are worried about it the saudis is a unrepresentative um you know pro-western monarchy other pro-western monarchies iran they're all worried about arab nationalism anti-colonial nationalism the israelis step in and do a great service for the british the americans also the Saudis, also the Iranians, who at that time were a British sort of client state. Um, and I think that really cements the relationship. And so, you know, sort of fast forwarding to the present day, I don't want to argue that Israel is a really absolutely unambiguous asset to the British and the Americans. I think there's a lot to manage there, which they struggle to manage. But fundamentally, in a really, really geostrategically important part of the world, you have got this outpost of the Western imperial structure, um, enormously militarily powerful, highly motivated to fight against your enemies, at odds with your enemies, and still kind of a, like a minority that you've cultivated against a majority in a geostrategically important part of the world. So overall, an asset, you know, there, there are definitely elements in which Israel is not an asset, you know, and the ambiguity of, the, of its nature as an asset 
is really evident in moments like this that we're living through now. But generally speaking, to have a militarily powerful state that's allied to you in a geostrategically important part of the world is obviously overall a good thing from the point of view of you know from the point of view of an imperialist attitude or an imperial and imperialist calculations. And it seems very specifically here now, actually. So you were talking about sort of how Britain did its empires, where it sort of pick uh, a minority to have sort of privileged power to to keep down the majority and keep the majority weak basically um, and the minority would be necessarily loyal to the or to some degree loyal um to britain because they relied on them for their for their power and then yeah. israel in the arab world is basically that on a regional level right so you've got yeah. israel which is there which is is very happy and willing to sort of take on this role of of keeping down um the arab states and making sure that they they don't become too powerful and at the same time because israel is this sort of very small state in the middle of a hostile region it also can't completely go off the rails and say, actually, we want complete independence from you, America, and to a lesser degree, Britain, because they know that if they if they go completely off the rails and, and do their own thing, then they will be screwed because, you know, however powerful their military is, they are a small country in a somewhat hostile region. So they, they do need this sort of ultimate backup of the United States. And so they play exactly the same role as sort of the minority communities often played within a country in the British Empire. They play it within the whole Middle East in sort of the, the post-colonial or neo-colonial period. Exactly. And I think this is a really illuminating and important way of looking at it in terms of, you know, too often we default in Western political discourse to when, a, when, a, when an ally in another part of the world is doing terrible things, we think, how is it that they've made us support them? You know, the assumption being, as ever in Western political discourse, we're the good guys who sign up to liberal values and, you know, we're civilised and decent and all the rest of it. So if ever our allies do bad things, they must be making us support them. They must be wielding power over us. So we really need, I mean, you know, in, in our... The left has a pedagogical role, I think, often in these moments, you know, where we can help just break these framings so that people can understand the world as it actually is. And, you know, talking about it in these terms, I think, can help because, you know, the idea that small states push big states around in that respect and the, and the imperial states are forced to support atrocities or forced to support violence, whereas in actual fact it's in the nature of imperialism, violence, you know. And, and states like Britain and, and the United States have their own interests in supporting these states. And in terms of that dynamic, um, yeah, when you when you play divide and rule, you've contracted out a part of the repression to your local allies. They take the heat. They 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 bear the cost to some degree. You support them in the background and keep your hands reasonably clean. And then you can say how terrible it is, but nevertheless, we have to support them. You know, and you, and you can give it all that that whole performance that we're seeing at the moment. Supporting but distancing, you know, supporting materially but distancing in terms of identity and distancing in terms of morality while supporting materially. But also, yeah, you make that, you you make your, I want to say client, but your local ally dependent on you. The more Israel behaves in this way, the more Israel is emboldened and enabled in behaving this way, the more isolated it is in the region. You know, and the more dependent, the more reliant it is on outside support. 
that's part of the logic of dividing the world. Um, so, you know, talking about it, 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 Israel's power, or in another context, Saudi's power over the British and the Americans, it's got the whole thing backwards. Not to say that they don't have some power, not to say that there isn't bargaining within the relationship, but we've got to think about it in terms of the asymmetry. There's bargaining and there's mutual dependence to some degree even, but that's asymmetric, you know, and that, that's really worth stressing. And, you know, and then thinking about how this has played out historically can help us understand how that works. Is there, so I suppose to, to an alternative to that or sort of to, to play devil's advocate, you could say that that's how Israel started out, you know, for the first yeah. few decades of its existence, that's what was going on. But then Israel sort of basically, you know, breaks out of this relationship. It's got an independent nuclear deterrent. It's got its own um, quite successful and sophisticated arms manufacturing industry. Um, it's it's doing, it's, it's sort of running policies which seem to cause, you know, more wanton disorder in the Middle East than necessarily just their role of, of keeping down any alternative that gets too powerful. You know, it, does it serve Britain's interest for settlers to be kicking Palestinians out of their homes in, in the West Bank, or does that just inspire a level of of, of opposition and, and, and anger in the Middle East, which is actually unhelpful to the West? And could we say that, you know, potentially Israel saying, yeah, thanks for, thanks for supporting us up to now. And we will, you know, we know we're still going to get your support because you want the state of Israel to exist. But we've actually got quite a lot of wee leeway to sort of have our cake and eat it, to have your support for the bits you like, but then do the settlement expansions be quite extreme, you know, and obviously Israel has its own, you know, internal politics as well. So how do, I mean, could we call them the excesses of Israel? How do the sort of excesses of Israeli policy, um, the settlement expansions, I think, you know, particularly, um, how does that relate to British? And I suppose, you know, we can't not talk about America here, American strategic interests. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. And I mean, you know, even empires, actual empires, colonial empires are not omnipotent. You know, it's a system of power which involves a degree of bargaining and with your local allies, where your local allies have their own agendas, they have their own agency, and they have a degree of leeway in pursuing that. And when you move into the near-colonial period, where it's imperialism rather than formal colonialism, um, the period we're in now, um, these ex-colonies, these ex-clients, or ex-puppet states, are no longer puppets. You know, they have their, they always had their own um, agenda. They always had their own interests, distinct interests, and identities. And increasingly, they they seek and develop their own autonomous power. Um, the Saudis have really tried to do this, um, especially in recent years. And the Israelis need a bit of, you know, need and seek a bit of leeway as well. Um, and that that's a dynamic we have to pay attention to, I think. As 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 I say, it's they're no longer client states, they're no longer puppets. There's a there's a degree of interdependence, but it's also true that this interdependence is asymmetric. And while both sides have power, British and the Americans or the Europeans and the Americans have hold the balance of power in, in, in this relationship. Um and there's no greater illustration of this, frankly than the enormous propaganda slash public diplomacy campaign that Israel and its supporters are constantly waging against any criticism of Israel, any dissent against Israel, you know. Um, did the amount of energy that's put into all of that to making the place for Israel in the West, 
I mean, why bother if we don't matter? Why bother if you know if you if you've got the strength, if you've got the ability to go it alone? Um, but why why do all that? There's such a, I, I don't think that drives policy um, at all. Um, I think it plays some role in terms of you know policing dissent in Britain, um, but it goes with the grain of Western policy. So I don't see it as a as, you know as a decisive factor. But there's a degree of desperation, I think, there from the Israelis. The, the, the extent to which some of that pro-Israel rhetoric and anti-pro-Palestinian, if that's a term I can use, that rhetoric and diplomacy. And, I think we can just call it anti-Palestinian, to be honest. Yeah, 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 yeah. Great. No, absolutely. Anti-Palestinian politics. This, these kind of McCarthyite witch hunts. These attacks on you know, even you know, the, the most bland and and mainstream humanitarian and, and human rights NGOs as you know insinuating that they're anti-Semitic whenever they criticise Israel. There is a degree of desperation here, I think. Um and and that speaks to the extent to which these Israelis still think because how many states really go it alone in the modern world? You know, all, how often do we see genuine autarky where a state is completely self-sufficient? And when we do see something like that, how does it look for the people who live there? I can think of maybe North Korea, Iran to some degree, maybe Cuba some to, to some degree. Never looks nice. Israel wants to be part of the West. It wants that and needs that, I think, um, ultimately, that outside support. Um, and, and their behaviour shows that and how much they value that. Would it help us here to talk about an analogy or, or, or a... Uh, an imperial outpost that went in a very different direction. So, I mean, all of these yeah. arguments about having a sort of Western outpost, a minority that is reliant on the imperial powers that can sort of stop any um, strong independence movement from the natives, that could all have been said about apartheid South Africa, right? So you've got this this, this group yes. of white people, Pan-Africanism existed just as Pan-Arabism existed. And you could say that having having these white people, this white minority in power in South Africa stopped this strategically important um, location potentially turning to sort of African socialist nationalism. And that was helpful for protecting the West's geostrategic interests. Like uh, similar arguments could be made about South Africa as, as you've made about Israel. Yet in the case of South Africa, um, the West decided, actually, this has gone too far. Um, the, the way that they're treating um, black people is, is too damaging for our relations with the rest of the global South. Um, we we're going to have to cut off these guys, and when they cut off those guys, and then you know sanction them and everything, the whole regime fell. So why did they turn against the white South Africans in a way that they haven't turned against the Israelis? I think there's two reasons. Well, and you have to remember that turning against the apartheid regime in Pretoria happened incredibly late in the day, really late in the day. Um, I mean. Uh, to the extent that I can talk about South Africa, often I'm going to be drawing on my own memories. It's not my area of expertise, but it's something I paid enormous attention to as a child um, because apartheid was still in effect when I became became politically aware, probably, you know, quite, quite early, maybe embarrassingly early. It was my sort of, you know, late period of, of primary school. Um, I was fully aware of apartheid South Africa and I was fully aware that the British government supported this. I remember when I first heard about it, because, you know, my, I come from a mixed family. My dad's white British and my mum's from, from India. The idea of racial inequality 
is something that would and and separate systems for people is something that resonates with me in my bones. And when I first heard about it, I was genuinely shocked that you've got separate bathrooms for 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 people of different you know with different color skin. To me, that's utterly arbitrary. And when I heard, when I became aware that the British government supported it, I was genuinely. It's really spoke to me the fact that we lived in a conservative area where people were voting for a British government that supported apartheid really helped to politicise me as a, as, a, as a child and made me understand why, okay, I'm getting racially abused by these people whose parents are voting for a government that supports apartheid, you know. And so, and that was late, right? That's the mid-80s. And apartheid falls in the early 90s. Mandela's released in 1991. When Mandela is released, remember there's kids at school saying to me, well, he shouldn't be released because he's a terrorist. I'd stand up row of a kid in my class when Mandela was released. Um, yeah, it happens very, very late. And why does it happen so late? I think it happens... Well, why does it happen at all? It happens because, for, for two reasons, I think. Number one, the Cold War ends. And so the role that South Africa played in fighting the Cold War... Remember, the Cold War was hot across the global South, right? Um, it's hot in Southeast Asia, in Indochina. Where millions are killed. It's hot in Latin America, where you've got, you know violence at borders on the genocide, or in places like Guatemala. And it's hot in Southern Africa as well, where the departure of the Portuguese, for example, creates a situation where um, you know the forces aligned to Cuba and aligned to the Soviet Union become ascended in Southern Africa, and and the apartheid regime is the hammer that the West wields against those forces. But the, you know the, the Cold War ends, and that that part of the logic starts to fall away. At this, that's that's one half of it. But this, we're talking here about the late eighties, early nineties, very close to the end. The other aspect is the huge civil society, the strength of civil society opposition to South Africa, was absolutely formidable. Absolutely formidable. It was a, it was just an absolute common sense in civil society, broad progressive civil society in in the West at the time, that this, this regime was a, was an abomination. Um, there was a moment when um, when Mandela was released and there was a big concert at Wembley Stadium, I think it was for his birthday or something like that in the early 90s. You can find the footage on YouTube, it's wonderful. Mandela, Winnie Mandela, are on the stage and there's a full capacity crowd at Wembley Stadium, 100,000 people singing You'll Never Walk Alone spontaneously. It's, it's tear-jerking to watch even now. So you've got this enormous force of civil society opposition to support to, to apartheid South Africa and the geostrategic logic of supporting South Africa falling away. It's going to take something like that if the British and the Americans abandon, um, abandon Israel or shift their kind of, you know, shift their logic on Israel. Um, it may take a degree of geopolitical a serendipity, for want of a better word, the stars aligning geopolitically, but I think it's going to take a real degree of civil society force. You know, you've got to you've got to intrude on their calculations as civil society. You know, if, when they're weighing up the costs and benefits of supporting this regime, they've got to weigh up the potential. For example, Biden has to weigh up the potential that he's alienating voters. Labour has to weigh up the potential that they're alienating voters, that they could lose an election or they could struggle to hold on to power. Once that happens, things things start to move. But the South African example is definitely an example of 
you know, they will cling on to these regimes to the bitter end, and you really have to change the equation for it to for it to uh, for it to shift. Is that not an example, though? Because I know, sort of, in your analysis, you you want to emphasise the the geostrategic and sort of de-emphasise the Israel lobby. You know, for want of a better word. Um, but is it not the case that that South Africa analogy shows us the power of the Israel lobby, which is that it does it's very successful at undermining those sort of civil society movements and especially the ability to gain any unity amongst civil society movements because the Israel lobby is incredibly effective at, you know, casting doubt on it. With South Africa, the the anti-apartheid movement was, you know, obviously you're saying, you know, there were lots of right-wing people who just thought Nelson Mandela was a terrorist, but among progressive circles, there was consensus. It's very easy to build a movement when there's sort of consensus that, no, this is, we're on the side of anti-racism. These right-wingers are on the side of racism. Let's do this sort of movement, which we understand how we've done it before. It's progressives fighting conservatives. What the Israel lobby is very effective at doing when it comes to Palestinian solidarity is they say, oh, actually, you guys who are in favor of Palestinian solidarity, they're not the progressives. They're racists. And it is very, they are very, very effective. Obviously, you know, the Jews in Israel have a different history to the, to the, um, Afrikaans in, in, in South Africa as well because of the Holocaust. I mean, people often say, oh, well, the, the Burrs were also oppressed by, by the British and they thought of themselves as an ethnic minority. I think, you know, the, the Jewish narrative is more compelling. You know, it's fundamentally, sort of objectively, it's more compelling than, than that narrative. But there is also a, a very organized, effective lobby which makes sure that any time it does seem like a broad civil society movement is, 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 is building, um, they can quite effectively um, use a PR strategy to to bring it down. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn might be one example here. Yes, he could have made some different decisions, but I think it's quite obvious that there was a situation whereby you had an opposition leader who was who was very um, friendly to the Palestinian movement, very critical of Israel, and there was uh, an organised effort. I'm not saying this is the only thing that brought him down, but there clearly was an organised effort to try and undermine his leadership. And could that not be a difference between, you know, the South Africans and the Israelis, which is that the Israelis and their lobbies are much better at PR than than the Burr were. Yeah, perhaps. But like, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't want to dismiss that. Um, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm keen to ensure that people on the left understand that you know these sort, of, these sort of lobbying efforts aren't the decisive factor. Like, you know, Western states don't need to be pushed into doing horrible things and supporting horrible things if it's in their interest. And their interests are clear in these instances. At the same time, I don't want to say that these things don't matter. I think from the point of view of pro-Palestinian activists, because we come up against pro-Israel campaigning and pro-Israel, you know, it, advocates for the state of Israel, whether organised or individuals or whatever, because we come up against them because they'll be the ones attacking us. It can seem from our level of this wider sort of structure of things that are going on that that these are really important actors. They're important to us, and I think they're decisive in the grand grand scheme of things. I mean, in in terms of this, um, this, this comparison between South Africa and Israel, it's never going to be perfect, you know. Um, even in terms of how apartheid manifests itself, it's not exactly the same. Um, and yeah, there are differences. There are differences. I mean, you know, just to pick up on a couple of things, and I think I want, and then get into what I think is, is the major sort of connection that can be made. You know, it, 
still uncomfortable from people on the left to saying people on the left to here, but it's not like we had no problem with anti-Semitism on the left. We did, to a degree, you know. The way I would catch, to try and counter it is that there were people on the left who absolutely said and did anti-Semitic things during the Corbyn leadership, and there's, you know, I don't think there's any denying that. I think the leaked report that came out of Labour um, even said that quite explicitly. After this, we, you know, people can't deny that this was a problem. Um, and then there was a degree of ignorance as well. In, in, but this, for me, this was this was a problem with a minority within our movement, and I don't feel uncomfortable acknowledging that because it's just a fact. You know, there were people who said and did things that were just wrong, and people who were overly defensive, who adopted a bunker mentality, and defended things that they should never have defended and should have been part of the solution to that problem rather than the problem itself by being kind of denialist. At the same time, the suggestion that the left as a whole is anti-Semitic, the suggestion that it's something inherent to the culture of the left that is anti-Semitic, the suggestion that advocacy for the Palestinians is driven by animus towards Jewish people rather than out of human fellow feeling for the Palestinians, that has to be rejected outright. Um, you know, we have to be really quite clear about that. And I think that, you know, that's becoming clearer to the general population as the last month has progressed. That actually there's a, you know, <laughs> maybe the left had a point when they were talking about Palestine. You know, maybe there was a reason for that. And maybe it was coming from a, a place of humanity and then, you know, and, and goodness and, and good values and human empathy and all those things. But the fact that that story could be told to some degree did, damaged the pro-Palestinian cause, you know, and to the extent that, you know, there were things, there were genuine problems that people could point to that did undermine us. But also, yeah, there, there, there is, the, the things that I've said were the one fair accusations against us. Those did resonate with people and that did play well. And, you know, the, in terms of another difference, you know, there's no claim that either side has to that historic land between the river and the sea that negates the claim of the other. You know, the problem has always been how do you ensure that both peoples live together in equality? You know, whether it's one state or two state, and how do you get the sides to agree? And fundamentally, how do you get the Israelis to grant equality and to, you know, to dismantle the system of apartheid and occupation? Um, but notwithstanding the whole settler colonial, colonial nature of that project and notwithstanding the apartheid system and notwithstanding the occupation, there is a legitimacy or, an, or, or, you know, we can at least have some empathy for that project, you know, in terms of the history of anti-Semitism in Europe and in terms of the Holocaust. And so, you know, that that's a factor that, that's not there in South Africa. There's no, you know popular understanding of the legitimacy of African dominant you know, white South African domination of the black population in the black majority. So that's so that's a difference as well. But there's a key commonality, I think, which is really worth stressing to the extent that there's resistance to pro Palestinian um, advocacy, there was also this resistance to people who supported Nelson Mandela, people who supported the ANC, people who supported you know, the, 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 the black liberation struggle in South Africa, which is this, that these states were seen as outposts of Western civilization. And this is what I mean about this whole story 
that our opponents tell about these situations goes with the grain of the dominant ideology. You know, this civilizational view of the world, which is that the you know, the West is the civilized and, and decent and, and liberal ones, enlightened ones, and beyond that, it's just, it's barbarism, you know. And, you know, these forces that we need to hold back, which are fundamentally violent, irrational, unreasonable, etc., etc., etc. Now, that applied in both cases, you know. The, the, the right and the centre, to some degree, with regard to South Africa, had that view, you know. And that's certainly true with regard to Israel. And so, we have an issue with this idea of the power that pro-Israel lobby is what are they really pushing against? They're pushing with the grain of the dominant ideology. If you think about the extent of Islamophobia in the West, the extent of anti-Arab racism in, 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 in the West generally and also in, um, you know, in the media, in, in politics, it, 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 through the war on terror, through the whole contestation around Western domination of the Middle East that's gone on for decades, you know, Edward Said documented this at length, even before this renewed Islamophobia of the war on terror. Um, you know, that, that pro-Israel lobby goes with that grain, and it's a constant appeal to the dominant ideology which says, we're an outpost of your civilization. We're standing up against the barbarians, who you know and say are the barbarians. We're with, in this story that you're already telling, we're with you against capital T then, you know, and and that that that's I, I'm not saying I wouldn't say that the Israel lobby has successfully transformed the dominant culture. What well, has you know the dominant culture with regards to uh, uh, an issue such as Israel Palestine? I think it's more that it has successfully partly because it's got better material to work with than the the South Africa the white South Africans did. Uh, you know, it's it's somewhat crude way of saying it, but you know, in, in terms of if, if you're thinking strategically here, um, they have been much more successful at dividing the progressives, dividing the people for whom the idea of us and them is um, objectionable, the people who think of themselves as anti-racist. And I feel like they have been much more successful at dividing the the other side, the anti-racist side, than, than the, the, the white South Africans were ever able to do. Yeah, that, that division is, is, is certainly there. But look, I mean, another thing to point out, in, in the United States, the pro-Israel lobby comes in the form of, of APAC, right, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. It's usually um, sort of, you know, well-organized PR operation. Again, it goes with the grain of American foreign policy. And honestly, if, that, if APAC didn't exist, I think policy would be broadly the same. I don't think it'd be that different. But in, I mean, what, what what kind of equivalent have we got in Britain? You know, there is some there is pro-Israel advocacy to a degree that, that's organised to a degree. But honestly, I think a lot of this comes spontaneously, you know, and it comes it comes spontaneously as part of the dominant intellectual culture in a state, Britain, with a long imperial history and a long history of racism that goes with it. You know, and 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 not this is not to say that the relationship of of, of Jewish people in Israel with, with whiteness is, you know, as if it's one and the same. It isn't, you know, anti-Semitism is still highly prevalent in, in, on the British right. It, it's constant talk of cultural Marxism and all that um, is it's, it's all there. But the idea <clears throat> of Israel as an outpost of Western civilization versus the Arabs versus the Muslims versus the barbarous hordes is 
you don't need a, you don't need a PR version for that because British liberals and conservatives will come out with that stuff spontaneously. Um, so this is going to be the end of the the episode on the free feed, um, especially with these Israel Palestine um, podcasts. I've been trying to make them um, as open as possible. I think it's really really important for for people to hear analyses, especially about um, British complicity in what is going on in Israel Palestine right now. I haven't done any bonus content for Patreon subscribers for a while though, so at this point, um, I am going to end the free episode, and me and David are going to talk about his area of particular expertise um, which is Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states and we're going to talk about um, the Abraham Accords their relationship to Israel how that could have played in um, to the events on October the 7th so if you want to listen to that bonus section you can sign up for as little as three pound a month at patreon.com forward slash crash course pod crash course is produced and edited by Lewis Bassett and Patrick Herman. Patrick Herdman does the sound design.